0: That's a wonderful sound, Ernie. Yeah. Laughter from children. Children of all ages. Everything forgotten. Except the magic world they're in. The circus world. Tinsel and spun candy and thrills. One of the reasons we made the greatest show on earth is because the world needs laughter today. But the real circus story is more than laughter. It's an exciting story, a human story. A story that was a tremendous problem to film.
1: It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen, joined, as always, by Samantha. And this week, the Oscars have come and gone, and we decided what better way to celebrate the Oscars that have ended by looking at an Oscar ceremony from the past. And we decided to go with a really, really controversial Oscar year in 1952 and talking about the 1952 Cecil B. DeMille Best Picture winner, The Greatest Show on Earth. We have a fantastic guest to help us talk about that, Michael Schulman, author of the book Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Michael, how are you?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
1: Before we talk to Michael about the greatest show on earth, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We are only a couple dollars shy of hitting our goal to talk about 1976's Gable and Lombard. And you know, you want to hear me talk about why we would cast James Berlin to play Clark Gable. We also do a lot of additional bonus pods, including doubled features. Looking at remakes, I just recorded a really fun episode looking at the dueling versions of Sabrina and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We also give out regular care packages of DVDs and other gifts and let you guess on an episode you might have heard our patron Jacob Haller talking with us on our last episode. That's at patreon.com slash ticklish And don't forget, my book is now out. But have you read the book 52 Literary Gems that Inspired Our Favorite Movies? Please consider ordering that wherever you get books. And our new Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha Ellis herself, featuring your favorite stars. Our popular Makoko mugs are also there, as well as our Gene Kelly asswork image that is all the rage. You can find that at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklish biz. Let's start talking about the greatest show on earth. It is an incredibly long movie. I don't want an incredibly long episode, but Michael, you are the Oscars expert here as far as Samantha and I are concerned. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to write your book, Oscar Wars?
0: Yeah, well, I've always been a big Oscar enthusiast. This book grew out of a assignment I had a few years ago at the New Yorker where I'm a staff writer. I went in 2016, 17, to Hollywood to write about how the Academy was navigating the aftermath of Oscars So White. I spent time with the president of the Academy at the time, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, the first black president of the Academy. As I was doing it, I learned so much about the history of the Academy and got really intrigued. After this was all over, this story came out and I went to the Oscars to cover them for the first time in person for The New Yorker. And that was the year of, of course, the envelope mix up with Moonlight and La La Land. I had watched the Academies over very many months reckon with this racial reckoning and go through this upheaval of this warring generations. And then it all seemed to have this crazy twist Hollywood ending. And I just saw it as this epic tale. That's why I got the idea of writing an Oscar book that was not a catalog of every single year, who won, who lost, what records were beaten or made, but really a narrative history that just took about a dozen or so years or conflicts or even a single category and go really, really deep into them and tell the story of the people who were involved that year, the movies they made and how these different forces collided. I tried to choose years that tell a larger story about changes in Hollywood and changes in American culture.
1: What we always talk about when Samantha and I have done Oscar episodes in the past, is that the Oscars of today is very different from the Oscars of the past. What did you notice in researching specific time periods compared to the Oscars of the last couple of years or even last decade?
0: I started with year one. The first Oscars, as they were called then, the Awards of Merit in 1929, was completely different. It was basically an industry banquet. The Academy had been around for two years by that point. So it was really their second anniversary celebration. It wasn't really a show. It was a banquet. People did speeches. It was at the Blossom Room of the Roosevelt Hotel. And then the first awards were given out in 15 minutes. It really evolved so much. Back then, the Academy was hated in Hollywood for what people perceived it as a company union that was there to resolve disputes and negotiate contracts in a way that would fend off Actors' equity and any threat of unionizing the uh, creative professions. Now, I write about how in the 30s, there was this war between the Academy and the guilds like SAG as they came into being. The Oscars in their current form really took so many years to take shape. It wasn't until actually 1953, the awards we are going to talk about, those were the first televised awards. The idea that the Oscars became a big TV extravaganza began essentially this year in 1953.
1: And it makes so much sense, too, once we start talking about the fact that this movie really is an advertisement for so many different things, whether that's
0: mm-hmm. actually
1: going to the movies or going to a Ringling Brothers circus. This movie is so much PR for Ringling Brothers. Oh, it yeah, is.
0: it's basically Spawn Con, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it truly is. I'm excited to discuss... For people that don't know The Greatest Show on Earth, it is directed by Cecil B. DeMille. This is actually his second to last feature that he would ever direct. He had done Samson and Delilah in 1949. He would end his career with The Ten Commandments in 1956. It's got a pretty decent script credited to Frederick M. Frank, Barre Linden, and Theodore St. John. Frederick Frank was actually a decent screenwriter, he had worked on Samson and Delilah. With Cecil B. DeMille, he would also work on The Ten Commandments. He would do a lot of television after this. Barry Lyndon was a screenwriter that had also worked starting around the late 1930s. He would do this as well as later films like the adaptation of War of the Worlds the
0: year after this came out. I assume he is no relation to Barry Lyndon, Thackeray novel and Kubrick movie.
1: I don't know if I just spiced up his name. It could be Barry. There's a little accent mark, so I'm going to assume it's Barre, but maybe not. (laughs) It's his
2: French cousin.
1: Yes, and Theodore St. John only had a couple credits to his name. He had worked uncredited in 1942 on Reap the Wild Wind, had done an episode of Front Page Detective, and then he did this, and then his last credit was for 1953's Fort Algiers. So I'm not really sure what each screenwriter brought to this film, but there are so many things that are in this film that... We got to talk about it. Charlton Heston plays the appropriately named Brad Braden, who is the overseer of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. He's all circus, as everybody says. His one love is the circus. He says to Betty Hutton, who plays the trapeze artist, that under the big sky, he certainly loves her. But under the big top, it's all about... The
0: circus. That's a real Bowery Linden gem there.
1: Yes. <laughs> Betty Hutton plays Holly, the trapeze artist who wants to be center ring in both reality and in Brad's heart. Cornell Wilde plays the great Sebastian, the cocky other trapeze artist. Gloria Graham plays, appropriately enough, Angel, who travels exclusively by Elephant Trunk. And don't forget James Stewart as Buttons the Clown. I want a t-shirt, Samantha, this might be worth designing, that just says James Stewart as Buttons the Clown.
2: I don't know what I expected with this film. I will say I had heard of this movie so early into my classic film journey. This movie really goes down in history as why did it win Best Picture? Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, any.
0: I know. I know. We'll get <laughs> There's to There's a it.
2: lot of we theories. We're going to get into that. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know. And now that I've seen it and read about it, I know too, but from the outside, that's the question everyone seems to be asking. There are so many people in this movie that I love. I mean, of course, Jimmy Stewart being one of them. This is a really stacked cast. I have Betty Hutton, who I've always really admired. This is the feather in her cap when it comes to her filmography. You know what? I'm going to defend her. I'm going to defend her. Dorothy L'Amour, who I absolutely love. She doesn't have a ton of screen time. The ladies are so stacked in this movie. And Gloria Graham, complicated as she may be. I said we wanted
1: to do an Oscar show. You suggested we do this movie, and I thought you were crazy. I was like, wait, 1952? Greatest show on earth? You're going to make me watch a two and a half hour Cecil B. DeMille opus? No. Actually, really glad you made me watch this, because it is so bad in so many ways, and yet it is ridiculously watchable. There's a really great Roger Ebert quote that sums up this movie. So perfectly. Oh, no, it's from Leonard Malton. Leonard Malton said that, quote, like most of DeMille's movies, this may not be art, but it's hugely enjoyable. That really does explain this movie away because it is so stupid in so many ways. Charlton Heston growls all his lines. Betty Hutton, I feel, is horrifically miscast. Hornell Wilde, Wilde's costumes, he comes out, For his first trapeze act, Full Riddler. Jimmy Stewart's backstory, I kept saying his mother comes to visit him. I'm like, is he on the run because he's gay? There has to be a following for this. Jimmy Stewart, I feel, is the only one who gets the assignment. He does the entire movie in clown makeup. He understands exactly what is going on. And let's not forget, this is a complete spawn con movie for Ringling Brothers, which if you were like me as a disabled woman and you already have issues with the circus, this movie just leans into that in a way that I was just like, okay, I'm never giving greatest showman crap ever again for how it plays with this. Cause I would much rather watch the greatest showman than I would watch this. And that's not before we get to the epic Cecil B. DeMille train crash that takes place in the third act of this movie, which ooh, the third act of this movie, I can't wait for us to talk about. It is the ultimate in trash cinema in that, It's the classiest trash we've talked about in a minute. Michael, what was your background with this movie prior to looking at the Oscars through the lens you're looking at them When,
0: To be honest, I had never watched this movie from beginning to end until this week. I feel like I had gotten bits and pieces of it. I had been thinking about it lately because it plays a very important role in the Fablemans and inspired the child Steven Spielberg to recreate the train crash a million times in his parents' garage and become a filmmaker, but I had not seen it. I did have some background with Ringling Brothers' Barnum and Bailey Circus. I asked my mother today, didn't I go to see that when I was a kid? And she said, yes, you were about four years old. Your grandparents brought you. I grew up in New York City, so it must have been at Madison Square Garden. They were so excited to bring their first grandchild to Barnum and Bailey Circus. And then they came back and said, we don't know if he liked it because he basically sat there completely stone-faced the entire time. It's funny because that is probably the exact same reaction I had watching the greatest show on earth. I'm not predisposed to love the circus. I'm starting out being a little bit annoyed by the whole thing. No, this was my first time having the pleasure of watching all two and a half hours sequentially.
1: The circus and I are very fraught. But even before the whole, how do I look at it as a disabled person, knowing the circus has a history of exploiting the disabled. I remember seeing Ringling Brothers when I was very little. They, up until a certain point, touted that they had the smallest man. That was their Mm. claim to fame. They had the littlest little person of all time. I very distinctly remember seeing him and screaming I was already short and compact as part of my disability. Seeing someone smaller than me, I was like, wait, what? And then you realize as you get older how they tout and exploit. So watching this movie where they have a lot of real Barnum and Bailey performers, including several little people, one of whom they just proceed to throw around like he's a dog. I was just like, please stop hurling that human around. I'm very concerned about his back. That's not even him climbing on a horse. He does bareback riding at one point. It's just Jimmy Stewart hanging out with him. He grabs him and throws him over his shoulder. I'm like, stop, stop it with the human. It's killing me.
0: I also felt somewhat bad for the animals too. All these elephants who have to parade around in a conga line.
1: That's essentially what ended up closing Barnum and Bailey. The exploitation of humans was not what damn them. It was the PR associated with the animal abuse and the animal exploitation that got them forced to close. Watching those big orchestrated elephant scenes where they were very deliberately presenting these animals as part of the family. There's a whole opening sequence where Charlton Heston is going through talking to all of the different animal trainers about the animals. Give that one some chicken soup and make sure their temperature is right. They're deliberately selling that we care about the animals. So when you watch those elephant sequences where the trainer has what I'm assuming is a cattle prod, but it's low to the camera and you're not really seeing what they're doing to entice the animal to act, it's really hard to get out of the corporate PR element. It's like watching movies that say, we thank the LAPD or the military industrial complex. Today, it's really hard to get away from the fact that Ringling Brothers had such a huge factor in this to the point where I read somewhere that this was necessary PR for them, because in 1944, they had actually had a circus fire that killed 167 people. In this movie, when they have deliberate discussions about the fireproof tents, that is PR to tell audiences that the tents can no longer catch on fire, because that had already happened.
0: (laughs) Oh boy.
2: To live in Florida, and I actually lived about 15 minutes from Sarasota, so it was really interesting reading through all the different filming locations. I had been to all of these places. I definitely felt a little bit skewed when I was younger, because... Going to the circus, that was really the first time I had seen a lot of those exotic animals, as I'm sure was the case for a lot of people, especially back in the 50s. Now, of course, it's extremely unsettling to watch. When you say exactly what they went through, it's horrible. But I still think of myself as a kid, and even as a kid, I would say the circus still had at least a little bit of its reputation left now a lot of the information is being spread about what's really going on. Now they even have the holographic elephants in the circus. I'm struck by is reading
1: reviews of this movie when it came out. It's numerous critics talking about how the movie shows the glamour of the circus, which I am a little struck by. And I don't know if that's because I grew up in the 90s where we had carny jokes all the time. The circus was never really considered glamorous. Nobody was Wanting to run away with the circus like they used to back in the day. The circus was more creepy, not sophisticated. I don't know. Maybe in the 50s, the circus was considered the equivalent of fine dining. And that's what I was intrigued in reading the reviews of this movie from 1952. Because to watch DeMille's film, I don't really see the glamour in it. Sure, they have big budgets for these epic parade sequences that we see that are themed Marie Antoinette. And the South Seas, which gives us a reason to put Dorothy Lamore in some tropical outfits and have her sing a song. But I don't see anything inherently sophisticated. These are people living in trailers, picnicking along the side of train tracks, living like an unhoused camp. It's not really glitz and glamour. And so I was not really sure what version of glamorous they were looking at, these reviewers, in 1952.
0: Maybe what they meant is sexy which you couldn't really say much about in 1952, but there is a lot of sexual tension at this circus, especially when Sebastian shows up. The thing I liked most about this movie was just Sebastian's Pepe LePew sex appeal to basically every woman he comes across.
1: He's a perpetual sexual harassment lawsuit waiting to happen. As soon as he showed up and he started talking, I was like, please tell me he's not going to have that accent the entire movie. Why not just hire Louis Jordan, an actual French actor? I do not understand this.
0: I would have loved that. I just want to put that out there. What is he? He's Hungarian or something, right? Now part of Slovakia to a Jewish family. He's European. He's not totally faking it.
1: (laughs) I hate Cornel Wilde. So I knew I was in for a rough sit the minute I was like Heston and Cornel Wilde are in this movie. And it's a Cecil B. DeMille film. I'm going to be in for a world of pain. I mostly dislike Cornell Wilde from Lever to Heaven. I have a lot of opinions about him in that movie. But actually, I will give Cornell credit. The only person that I think is having any fun in this movie is him. Because not only does he have the Pepe Le Pew accent, and pretty much hits on every woman he meets. And I cannot stress how I feel there's a queer coding to this movie. And it's a lot of his performance not only are his costumes very gaudy but he just has this swagger so much so that at the end of the movie when there is a blood transfusion that is needed on the side of a train track chuck heston's like i don't want his blood damn it cornell's character proceeds to make sex jokes the entire time being like well if you're better at making love that's because of me And if you look at your children, you're going to see me in there. I was just like, dude, I get it. You are horny for anybody in this cast. It really doesn't matter. Male, female, you're into it. It certainly makes this movie far more interesting that he really just feels like this queer-coded character.
0: (laughs) I did not sense a lot of queer coding in this movie. I felt it was more kitsch than camp. It's like pure straight to the heart of mainstream 1952 American culture, give the people what they want. I wish it had had more queer coding or something to make it more interesting. The most queer coded thing is just, you get to see his body a lot. The camera enjoys his muscles probably more than it does Betty Hutton's legs.
1: It's a little objectifying, which I was interested by. We're all about taking the male gaze and trying something different with it. The way the costuming Accentuates him, feels very deliberate. Can
0: guarantee that in 1952, there were a lot of young adolescent girls and boys as well who had feelings they couldn't quite place watching this movie (laughs) and watching Sebastian.
2: I love all the costumes in this movie, but I agree. As soon as he came out in his very first outfit, although I will say, in my history with Cornel Wilde, I've seen a few of his movies. I can never remember him. He just has the most forgettable face. Your face blindness. (laughs) Truly, he is one of those people I just can never place. I've seen probably half a dozen of his movies by now. And this is the first one I could really say he was anything to write home about in. And even that is saying a lot. I don't like Charlton Heston either. The women of this movie I love so much that they make up for the men.
1: Cornell is the only one that gives off any ounce of sex appeal. I say that with a gag in my throat a little bit, because I don't want to think of sex appeal in Cornell Wilde. Considering that you picked the worst romantic leading man in Chuck Heston, there's a moment where Sebastian and Holly are having romantical moments. It's a cringy line now, but Cornell tells her, the girl in you says no, but the woman in you says Yes. That's disturbing, but I'd much rather hear it come out of his mouth than Charlton Heston's mouth because Charlton Heston's character is supposed to be the character that we want to see end up with somebody. All of the women in this movie are DTF for him, and I'm not really understanding what they're seeing that I am not. Poor Gloria Graham spends the entire movie just sniping at Betty Hutton's character being like, You need to treat him right. Brad deserves better than you. And she just wants to pack his pipe and make him coffee. And I'm sitting here thinking, girls, you are both beautiful women. What is Brad offering you as a person? What is he bringing to a relationship other than the Chuck Heston grimace that he has plastered to his face?
0: He has absolutely no... Sexual chemistry with certainly Betty Hutton, who he winds up with. He just seems asexual. All of his lines are just in the exact same tone of voice, him saying some version of, I just care about the big top. That's all I care about. This circus, this circus is all I care about. It's like, okay, great. So why would anyone want to date you? But since you bring up that pipeline, we should shout out, in my opinion, the two cringiest lines in the whole movie. One is when Glory Graham is fixing him his pipe and he says something like, I didn't know a woman could fill a pipe. What? And then the other one is earlier when he's the one who says that the circus is running in the black. He's telling the company the circus is running in the black. And then I believe it's Gloria Graham who says, you mean we all have to play in blackface?"
2: Yeah. Yeah. That one didn't strike so well. Charlton Heston is one of my grandmother's favorite actors. She gifted me her trove of Charlton Heston items. I could never jive with him. He's one of those people, Gregory Peck, I always say, I love everything but his voice. Charlton Heston, I only like his voice.
1: Of course, you can tell which side of the political spectrum somebody's on by whether they like Charlton Heston or not. I can tell you I don't like him at all. For a variety of reasons, both personal and professional. But mostly, I just kept hearing his voice in this movie and thinking of the boss in Team America, World Police. It's a deliberate Charlton Heston impersonation, which I thought was funny. He's one of two people that I feel is just floundering in this movie. And really, as a character, Brad Braden, which he's Brad Brad, just you couldn't even come up with a different last name. Do we pretend that we care about people, please? His character is as undistinctive as his name. He is completely one dimensional. He loves the circus so much so that I wanted to turn into Pee Wee Herman and just be like, well, then why don't you marry it?
0: We'll have to take this circus from his cold, dead hand.
1: That too. There's nothing to him as a character. He just really, really, really loves the circus. So much so that I've never seen this in any other type of movie where in the midway point when the woman that he has been romancing or whatever passes for romance in his world, Decides to abandon him and go over to the other guy. It's really not a loss. Guy was just like, okay, that makes sense. There's no foundation laid. There's no chemistry. I don't really mind that Betty Hutton isn't with him anymore because he didn't act particularly interested in her. When Gloria Graham starts forcing herself on him, genuinely, I was unclear if he had ended up with either one of them or none of them. I would have been completely fine. Because the film isn't particularly interested in him ending up with anybody.
0: It's tissue thin, the idea that these people should be together. And the, the fact is that Betty Hutton's character seems genuinely to care for and have the incredible hots for Sebastian. So after a while, I just felt like, okay, then they should be together. I'm not particularly invested in her getting over Sebastian so she can get back with Brad charlton heston they don't seem to have any interest in each other really at the end of the day and yet the movie has decided that sebastian is the wrong man for her she's destined to be with brad at the end fine i guess i just wanted her to have a fun time with sebastian because he seemed like a good roll in the hay
2: i would rather her be with sebastian for a little while than end up with brad
1: They keep emphasizing throughout the whole movie. They're both flyers. They're both trapeze artists. And one can't understand that unless they are that. So Brad doesn't understand what it feels like because he's not up in the air. Okay, cool. You found a man that understands you. Why would you force yourself on a man that clearly doesn't care and has no interest in anything else other than the circus? You're always going to be complaining about how you're second best. But maybe Holly's a masochist. I don't know. Maybe she wants a toxic relationship where she's treated poorly. This is a movie where all the men treat the women poorly, except for Sebastian. Don't forget Angel has the other dude, the elephant trainer that I watched this movie very closely. They are not in a relationship before this, right? She's telling him, we are not together. I do not want you. We are not dating. He's that guy that's like, no, but we're together. It's a total stalker situation, right? I read that right.
0: I will say the sequence that I thought was the most interesting, kind of the best thing in the movie was when Betty Hutton and Cornell Wilde are trying to one up each other with their trapeze acts. It is a really interesting metaphor for the sexual chemistry between yeah. them. And I do feel like there is something just about them doing things with their bodies that are increasingly risky and impossible. That being this subtext of the stunts they're doing at the circus in front of everyone got a little bit of heat to it. To be honest, that's why they were the only couple I really was rooting for because they seem to have this very unique way of communicating, which is through trapeze.
2: That's my favorite scene as well. Not only for that, which I love reading into, but also aside from a couple of shots of green screen in that scene, a lot of it feels very genuine. And I know 50s special effects only go so far, but for the most part, we do know that Cecil B. DeMille wanted all of his actors to learn at least a little bit of the act that they were trying to show on screen. So Betty Hutton worked really hard. And Cornel Wilde, I'm sure, worked really hard, despite being afraid of heights, to make a scene like that work. And it really does work.
1: Betty Hut, she at least learned how to work on the single bar. And Cornell Wilde also tried very hard, even though he was terrified of heights. Those are the moments where the death-defying Cecil B. DeMille-ness of the movie shines. Like what you're hearing? Then consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We host two additional bonus shows and special series like Six Weeks with the Thin Man, give out free merch, allow you to guess on an episode, and more. You can check it out at patreon.com ticklishbiz. And if you want to take Ticklish Biz home with you, consider buying something from our Redbubble shop. You can find our holiday Gene and Judy Makoko mugs or get our newest design devoted to Gene Kelly's ahem, assets in American in Paris on a variety of objects. It's at redbubble.com people ticklishbiz. Now back to the show. And it's few and far between because I don't think we're stressing enough. The green screen in here is really bad. Maybe it's because of HD televisions and we're able to see things. And it's for innocuous moments in some scenes where they're just looking at a crowd and it's clearly green screen.
2: There was one scene with Betty Hutton and Jimmy Stewart where the long shots were fine, but the close-ups of the same exact scene were green screen and it didn't make any sense those couple of moments of green screen during that trapeze scene definitely ruin it there's just so much unneeded use of it
0: also while we're talking about the aesthetics of the movie even in talking about these romantic pairings as much we're dancing around what i would consider the main problem with this movie which is that over and over and over and it just grinds to a halt so that we can just watch the circus and so much of it is a pageant. There's that thing that's actually a pageant where they're just walking out in different crazy costumes. They call out the Disney characters, and then you see people come out yeah. dressed as Mickey Mouse. Or there is no plot to it. There is no subtext. There's nothing except here is a filmed version of Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Enjoy. That's probably something that was much more impactful if you were seeing this in some kind of Technicolor movie palace in 1952 what i could sense is the reason for the movie's existence was throughout the 50s you get these gigantic technicolor cinema scope extravaganzas to pull audiences away from television but watching this movie on a laptop as i did and i'm sure watching it on television watching on tcm or whatever it really doesn't have that overwhelming spectacle to impress you just with images of the circus show
1: they show the map of this 10-week tour that they're doing. And it only comprises a little bit of the East Coast. And I'm wondering how much of it was because Ringling Brothers was a national thing. When I was growing up, it toured the entire U.S. I'm wondering if it also was this concept of the translation of Broadway theater to film. Well, Most people can't go to the East Coast so they can at least see it in a theater.
0: One person we happen to know went to see it in the theater with Steven Spielberg. And I remember hearing an interview with him about The Fable Men's this past year, where he said that he didn't really know what a movie was. So when his parents brought him to see The Greatest Show on Earth, he thought he was going to the circus. It was this revelation to him that this is a movie. This is not really the circus. But I almost feel like he was right. This is supposed to be the next best thing to being able to go and see the circus live.
1: And because it's a movie, it's trying to pull double duty. You have to create these really melodramatic, dramatic moments to keep two hours and 32 minutes moving in a two hour and 32 minute movie about the circus. A lot of really messed up stuff happens so much so that I'm just thinking a lot of the stuff that I would genuinely assume with Carney culture doesn't happen. Instead, we get an obsessive. Guy who is ready to smush a woman's face with an elephant foot. The fact that the guys on the Midway are like the mob and are willing to blow up a train in order to rob it. Let's not forget what happens to the great Sebastian. He, of course, falls, but it's not Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis and Trapeze. He ends up essentially disabling himself. So you have all of these big dramatic arcs for everything that. Honestly, feel anathema to what you would expect to happen in a circus. It is a bizarre complaint to have, but I just kept thinking, God, a lot of stuff is happening in this one circus troupe.
0: Chief among them also being the fact that Jimmy Stewart, as what's his name? Bubbles? Buttons the Clown. Buttons, oh, Buttons the Clown. I'm sorry, but every time Buttons the Clown was on screen, I just desperately wanted him to not be there anymore. I was so annoyed by Buttons the Clown. And I don't know what I would have preferred because I found everyone in this movie annoying, but I especially just did not want to see Buttons. But of course, Buttons is on the run from the law because in his former life as a doctor, he mercy killed his wife. Do we even know why? What was going on with her? Nope. They just say he killed his
1: wife, but she was dying anyway.
0: Right. So he is this kind-hearted murderer who is using his clown makeup as cover and hiding out in the circus, but the lawmen are hot in pursuit of him, eventually catch him in the act of giving a blood transfusion to Charlton Heston after the train crash. There's something about that subplot that every time it came up, I was like, why is this in this movie? This is so weird. It's such a tonal mismatch for this movie that there's this mercy killing In the clown's past. It was so bizarre and so weirdly dark in this way that the movie did not have the tools to unpack.
1: I wonder if it's a contribution from one of the three screenwriters specifically, because it does feel shoehorned into the plot so much so that we get regular returns to it. Holly finds a piece of newsprint that says, This doctor disappeared and he said, You always kill the thing you love, which by the way, That's a very common quote. And I think the fact that this movie says Jimmy Stewart is the only person that ever said it ever man kills the thing he loves. Also, Mm -hmm. it's a metaphor.
0: Not for buttons.
1: (laughs) Not for buttons. It's literal.
0: Buttons heard that and was like, oh, OK. Ran with it. It's almost like they worked backwards from the idea that, okay, what if a clown in this circus was using his clown makeup to hide from the law? What would his crime have been? And then working backwards, they didn't want Jimmy Stewart to have done something really horrible, so they make up this benign crime that is also a very serious crime that also under the Hayes code. He does get arrested at the end. He's not the villain. He's not He's a He's arrested scary with
1: dignity. We support yeah. him. Problem is, is this is the Jimmy Stewart of 52. If this had been the Jimmy Stewart of what, 39 and another thin man, we might have let him just be a cold-blooded unrepentant murderer which I would have definitely been into. The fact that we get literally the crime he's being accused of within the last 40 minutes of the movie shows that we could have snipped the plot line out and not lost anything. Even though Jimmy Stewart seems to be having a lot of fun, he gets to jump on a trampoline, he gets to play with a little dog, he's certainly having more fun than Charlton Heston is. The plot line is really, really dumb.
2: When you have someone who's such a titan like Jimmy Stewart in a movie like this, I was definitely worried that he would, for lack of a better phrase, half asset, His part would be dwindled down terribly just so he could come in for a couple days, get his paycheck, and leave. But that wasn't the case at all. I was actually very pleasantly surprised by that. Even if it's not the plot that we wanted, the scenes that he's in, he's doing his best effort. He obviously studied clowns. He's just such a positive guy that it's a very easy transition.
1: Jimmy Stewart is a consummate professional that he is the only one I believe as I said understood the assignment. He exactly. is able to give you all the right tones. The person that I feel is at the opposite end of that spectrum is Betty Hutton cuz she is trying way way too hard with this movie. I love Betty Hutton in Annie Get Your Gun. I love her as Trudy Cockenlocker in Miracle at Morgan's Creek. I could not stand her in this movie. I know they wanted Lucille Ball for the angel role, the Gloria Graham role, but I would have loved to have seen Lucille Ball in this role because I know she can do drama as well as she could do comedy. Betty Hutton seems completely uncomfortable with the drama in this. All of her lines are just panting, heaving. The intensity is just physically torturous to her. She makes a lot of really just cammy facial gestures to the camera. There's scenes of her running with her arms out. It's almost like silent film acting almost just in terms of how physical her performance is that it really obscures her ability to act. I just don't feel she's acting. I feel that she is mimicking a performance that is expected of her.
0: I have to say, I do enjoy her smoky voice, but I found her personality in this movie just unbearable. She's like one of these 1950s female characters that has the emotional maturity of a child. She's very easily excitable and runs around. Despite her lust for Sebastian, she was this emotionally regressive woman child who happened to be really great at the trapeze.
2: I do really admire that she was a career woman, though, and that she was very passionate about being front and center and building her act.
0: That's true, except does this movie even pass the Bechdel test? Behind the scenes, all of these women who have these cool careers in the circus are just obsessed with Sebastian or whoever. They're Um, very
1: defined by the relationships. Gloria Graham, her entire character has to do with a relationship in the sense that the guy is obsessed with her. Is threatening her with physical violence every five minutes. She tries to find another relationship with, yes, a man that she is into, but you have to wonder how much of that desire is also a desire for protection. And then at the end of the movie, we're like, oh, well, you don't get him, but maybe she'll end up with Sebastian as a consolation prize. And that's not including all of the slut shaming that she gets from Betty Hutton that just keeps telling her, oh, well, you've been around the block and you've dated a lot of men. The old who I feel maybe isn't defined by a man is Phyllis, Dorothy Lamour's character. I would love to know what they offered her when they sat her down for this role. I know they said this was a different performance for her. She had been playing in The Road 2 movies. This allowed her to be comedic. This allowed her to not have to be anchored by two male co-stars, but it is a nothing burger of a role. It is just her maybe making a couple one-liners and getting to wear some pretty clothes and sing a song. But who is Phyllis? Who is she? What is her character?
0: The reason she's there is because this is one of those movies where it's just whatever we can pack into it, the better. And if you can get just another star somehow, and that extends to the cameos. There's this one pan where the camera passes the audience of the circus and you see, who is it? Bing Crosby and Bob Hope just eating popcorn and watching the circus. It felt like one of those movies where the point of it was just to have this cast of thousands, bigger, better elephants, clowns, Jimmy Stewart, Bob Hope. More is more. More is more is more is more.
1: I have to throw out the Cornell Wilde disability plot line that happens. So he falls off of the trapeze. He comes back and he's got a gnarled arm that he's got all contorted. He says he can't be on the trapeze anymore. Betty Hutton decides that she is going to be with him. Maybe out of sympathy. She says no, but you know, whatever. But we realize at the end of the movie that the doctor says it might be psychosomatic paralysis. There's a couple great disability stereotypes that we get in movies. And one of them is, It's all in your head. He essentially has Ricky Bobby. If you've seen Talladega Nights paralysis plot line where it's just completely made up. And I just thought that was hilarious. At this point, the movie's been going on for two hours already. My brain just like exploded. All of the women say he's a player. He says whatever he needs to get into a woman's pants. I'm not 100% convinced that he didn't know this was a whole ruse. He might have committed to the bit, usual suspect style.
0: It's the 1952 version of the game. That, <laughs> he's just a pickup artist. Find the long game, fall off the trapeze, just, pretend to be paralyzed, and then slowly recover. Or rapidly recover, as the case may be, for no reason.
2: I just see him taking that broken hand around bars with the puppy dog eyes. You <laughs> want to hear the
1: story of time. how I became disabled. It's really sad, but you might be into it. Let's get to the Oscars. This is often considered one of the most controversial Oscar wins of all time. This was the last time that a movie would win Best Picture without winning director and script till Gladiator? Gladiator of Chicago was one of the two. You mean and without
0: winning either one of them?
1: Without winning either of those. It was also the only Best Picture winner to not win any of the acting or anything else in the Spotlight. They had fans, clearly, at won Best Picture, but. It didn't really get any of the other major awards that one would expect. It did win two Oscars outside of Best Picture. It did win for that script by Frederick M. Frank. What's interesting is the script, which they cite as Best Motion Picture Story, is cited to Frederick M. Frank, Theodore St. John, and Frank Cavett. So are the other two names pseudonyms? I'm just now realizing that.
2: Interesting. Politically, there's a lot going on here, so it's possible. Well,
0: one best story. Back then, there were three categories. Best story, best screenplay, which is basically best adapted screenplay, and then best story and screenplay, which means best original screenplay. So basically, those people won for the story credit. Best original screenplay essentially went to the Lavender Hill. It didn't win for the screenplay. It went for the story concept. idea. The concept, <laughs> yeah, which is fine. Maybe Barret was the one who actually wrote the lines.
1: Possible. It was also nominated for Best Director, Best Costume Design, and Best Film Editing, but it did not win those awards. The Oscar is a really controversial one in case people are curious because it was up against the likes of High Noon. The Quiet Man, Ivanhoe, Singing in the Rain wasn't even nominated, which I find amazing.
0: To amazing, me
1: a travesty, a travesty. This is considered one of the weakest Oscar years of all time. Empire listed it in 2005 as the third worst Best Picture winner. It was also listed by Time as among the 10 most controversial Best Picture races. And Premiere placed this film on its list of the 10 worst Oscar winners. It also is the second lowest spot on Rotten Tomatoes 2011 list of the 90 films to win Best Picture ahead of only 1929's The Broadway Melody. I know that when we decided we were going to do an Oscars episode and Samantha and I looked at this, to really look at everything that was nominated, it's a really bizarre hodgepodge of decisions. High Noon makes sense. Quiet Man makes sense. Ivanhoe eh, doesn't make sense. This does not make sense. Michael... You wrote a book on the subject. What is it about this Oscar race? Why do you think this one Best Picture?
0: This year at the Oscars comes up in my book in the chapter about the blacklist. The politics of Hollywood at the moment really ran through a lot of what was going on. High Noon was nominated for seven Oscars this year. In my mind is a far, far, far more deserving movie. Pretty much a perfect movie. But here's what was happening. Heinen was written by a man named Carl Foreman. He wrote it as a metaphor for the blacklist, because, of course, it's about Gary Cooper as this marshal in a small town. He has this band of killers coming for him on the noon train, goes to everyone in town one by one. They turn their backs on him, so he has to face them down alone. This was Carl Foreman's indictment of how cowardly people in Hollywood were acting with HUAC investigating them. Amazingly, while the film was being made, Carl Foreman himself was brought for a congressional committee and didn't name names, and he himself was blacklisted and essentially run out of town by John Wayne, and he self-exiled to England. Then the movie was nominated for all these Academy Awards. People didn't generally realize that it was such a direct metaphor for the blacklist, but the fact that it's nominated screenwriter... Was blacklisted, was a scandal for the movie. There were actually, at first, there were headlines like, High Noon looks to sweep Oscars. But then a few things happened. Billy Wilkerson of The Hollywood Reporter said that the Screenwriters Guild that it won was an affront to the upholders of our democracy. A Paramount executive who was on the Academy board told his CIA connection he had been working behind the scenes to prevent High Noon from winning Best Picture. And then there was a report in The Hollywood Reporter that if Carl Foreman won the Screenplay Award, nobody from High Noon even wanted to accept it on his behalf. Years later, in his memoir, Stanley Kramer, who produced High Noon, wrote, I still believe High Noon was the Best Picture of 1952, but the political climate of the nation and the right-wing campaigns against High Noon had enough effect to relegate it to an also-ran status. I don't think that's the only reason that this movie won. But of course, Cecil B. DeMille was known as this arch conservative red baiter and his politics very much fit the moment more than the politics of Carl Foreman, who wrote High Noon. It was also probably a legacy award for Cecil B. DeMille. But I don't think you can discount the blacklist politics behind it.
1: And Marguerite Roberts, who was the screenwriter for Ivanhoe, would also get blacklisted in Gary Cooper won the Oscar for Best Actor for High Noon. He did not show up to accept it. John Wayne took it on his behalf. In case you need another reminder of how horrible John Wayne is. Anthony Quinn won for Best Supporting for Viva Zapata. He also did not show up for this. It's got to be a contentious ceremony on top of the fact it was the first to be televised. You got to love how you're expecting all these big stars to show up and
0: they just don't. That was more common back then for people to not show up. There wasn't as much of an expectation. Taking a step back, if you look at these two movies, The Greatest Show on Earth and High Noon, even if you just set aside the politics, the blacklist politics that already gave High Noon a serious disadvantage, in a way, they're both metaphors for Hollywood, but in a very different way. The Greatest Show on Earth is about how everyone in this troupe bands together to put on a show, and they're all part of this big family, and everyone has their job and their place, What they come up with is this gigantic spectacle. That's a really appealing message to the members of the different branches of the Academy. You actually see crew members in this movie putting together the big top. Of course, given the competition from television, it's also an appealing idea that the movies are special because it's a spectacle. And this movie is a spectacle. And the circus is a spectacle. Whereas High Noon is a metaphor for Hollywood in that it's about how craven everyone is and how selfish and cowardly and unwilling to make a stand and take a risk people are. Even if people didn't realize that it was so directly about HUAC, subconsciously, this thing affects how people vote. You're more likely to vote for something that affirms your worldview in that moment. And I think the idea that The Greatest Show on Earth holds up the idea as Hollywood as this creator of gigantic spectacles that people have to go to the movies and see. It's almost like this year with nominations for Top Gun and an Avatar, these movies that are propping up the theatrical distribution model and in the industry that can't be discounted as well.
1: The 1950s really is a decade of Hollywood's growing awareness of their instability on the world stage, especially in America, and their fear of looking vastly irrelevant. Because if you look at the entirety of 1950s Best Picture winners, the greatest show on earth really doesn't look that bizarre when placed against the backdrop of all the other winners. You have All About Eve in 1950, American in Paris in 51, From Here to Eternity in 53, On the Waterfront in 54. So we were able to talk about the blacklist apparently two years later. Marty in 55, Around the World in 80 Days in 56, Bridge on the River Quiet in 57, Gigi in 58, and then ending with Ben-Hur in 59. All of these movies are big, epic spectacles, whether that's in terms of story or production design or runtime, the roadshow film. And Hollywood is becoming cognizant of how out of touch they are, and they are just desperate To hold on to that so much so that it wouldn't be until, what, 68, the great Oscar race that had In the Heat of the Night and Dr. Doolittle, which most people cite as the realization that Hollywood was completely out of touch with what people actually were wanting to watch. So when you look at it in that sense, yeah, The Greatest Show on Earth does not feel that bizarre. It's once you start looking at what else was included in that year, or at least not included in 52 specifically... You start to scratch your head, which, as we've talked about in our Oscar snubs episode, the Oscars have commonly gotten it wrong in terms of who wins or is not even nominated. A big reason this wins is, like you mentioned, the career Oscar for Cecil B. DeMille. He had been doing this since the silent era. He'd been one of the original directors of Hollywood. And again, this was a second to last film, which The Ten Commandments was nominated for Best Picture in 1956. It did not win. Around the World in 80 Days would win, which it feels almost like this movie in the sense of grand scope, splashy special effects, big names. There was a desire to give him his flowers for something.
0: Yes. And yet he didn't win Best Director. John Ford <laughs> won for The Quiet Man, and it's a pretty stacked category. Best Director, you have Joseph Mankiewicz for Five Fingers, Fred Zinnemann for High Noon, John Houston for Moulin Rouge there is something to that, to just let's reward Cecil B. DeMille. This is something that has been attention from the beginning of Academy Award history. In year one in 1929, there were actually two awards that year for the top prize. There was Outstanding Picture, which went to Wings, the big World War I movie, and then Best Unique or Artistic Picture, which went to Murnau's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which was the more quiet psychodrama you see that same tension looking at the greatest show on Earth versus High Noon. I mean, you see it this year, if you compare Avatar, Top Gun, Maverick with a Tar, Triangle of Sadness, or whatever. So I think that's always a tension in the Oscars. do we Do we give the top award to something that was the biggest movie that showed off all of the power of the bigness of movie making, or the smaller, quieter, perhaps better made movie? And this was the year when they clearly, clearly, and for reasons that probably had a lot to do with the insecurity over television, went for the big spectacle that proved that movies are worth going out to with the entire family. Part of the reason why this was the first televised Oscars and not a few years earlier was just because there was so much resentment and fear about television that the Academy didn't want it to be on TV until they realized they basically had to. To make money for the Academy. And the Academy was in desperate financial straits. Selling the rights to television remains how they make most of their money. Those tensions, especially this particular year, steered the Academy to affirm its own reason that movies exist, which it saw as it's literally called the greatest show on earth.
2: You could really use that argument to support so many of the movies that were left out of the race. I made a little list limelight is a really great example that ties right into that charlie chaplin in the 50s was completely kicked out of the u.s a movie like that that definitely focuses more on the artist and the artist's struggle isn't going to be nominated for anything even though i would say limelight probably deserves a best picture nod a little more than ivanhoe but that's just me that's just me
1: (laughs) I can't say that I hated this. I expected to be just pulling my hair out for two and a half hours. I was not looking forward to this. It is weirdly compelling. And that's all before a train literally crashes and spends 10 minutes waiting to find a way to get Chuck Heston out from under a pile of metal. Spoiler alert, it involves an elephant, of course. I had fun with this. This is a very fun movie. It's fun because it's dumb. It's so goopy, half baked, Spawn Con. I cannot keep going back to the fact that this is an advertisement for Ringling Brothers. This is an advertisement for big screen filmmaking. It is clearly catering to selling you something. I don't know how I felt about that overall, especially because the circus now to modern audiences is such a relic of exploitation and animal abuse that. I'm intrigued to see people trying to watch this today, which if you want to, you can watch it on Paramount Plus, which is how I watched it. The characters are really underwritten, but Cornell's having fun. Gloria Graham's beautiful. So I didn't completely hate this. Did it deserve the Oscar? No. No, Singing in the Rain deserved the Oscar, but it didn't even get nominated that year.
0: Funnily enough, The Greatest Show on Earth and Singing in the Rain both feature in movies that came out this past year singing in the rains of course is at the end of babylon and the greatest show on earth is in the fablemans it's interesting to maybe think of this movie as part of steven spielberg's origin story you can see the dna of this movie in his own taste for spectacle and for special effects i would say there's also an element of high noon in spielberg like jaws is much more high noon kind of movie with the suspense And this smallness, in a way, and the fear, then The Greatest Show on Earth, Spielberg is almost like a a combination of the two of those movies. It's probably best viewed as a companion piece to the Fablemans.
1: Interestingly enough, I kept thinking of Babylon watching this, because much like Babylon, oddly enough, I like this a lot more than I like Babylon. Much like Babylon, it has really underwritten characters trying to sell you a fantasy that you understand you're being preached to, and that it's all about capitalism. It's got plot points that just go nowhere. I'd love to know if Damien Chazelle as well took from this when he worked on Babylon.
2: I have to say I definitely moaned and groaned a little bit when it came to watching this, but I knew it was something that we had to cross off. We have to discuss it at some point. And I'm really glad we did. It's just such a great gathering of stars and a lot of the entertainment doesn't hold up anymore, but a lot of it does. And I was very surprised by how much of it did. And the fact that for the two and a half hours, I wasn't trying to tear my hair out. It does need to be shorter, just on the record. It <laughs> needed to be about half an hour shorter.
0: I never want to see or think about Buttons the Clown ever again.
2: <laughs> Samantha, we're
1: making a Buttons the Clown shirt. This is yes. what's up. I just need it to say, and jimmy stewart as buttons the clown because that might be my favorite credit
2: of all time just his credit
1: yes because it it acts like it's supposed to mean something significant right it's not just that it's jimmy stewart but that he's playing freaking buttons the clown the audience is supposed to say oh no i was into having jimmy stewart in this already but not as buttons the Clown." Listeners, you can let us know about Buttons the Clown, the 1952 Oscar race, whatever you want. You can email that to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com, or you can DM it to us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz or Instagram at ticklishbiz. That's going to close us out for today. We would love to thank Michael Schulman once again. His book, Oscar Wars, is definitely a must read. Michael, where are you online Where can fans find out more about you and your book?
0: Well, I'm on Twitter at MJ Shulman. My work is at The New Yorker, so newyorker.com. And Oscar Wars is wherever you get your books.
1: That's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews matter. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts, five stars. You can follow us once again on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and our often ignored TikTok at ticklish biz. You can follow me at therap.com as well as on Twitter at journeys underscore film and Instagram at Kristen Lopez 88. Samantha Ellis, where are you online?
2: You can mostly find me at Classic Film Geek on Twitter, but you can also find my blog post at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com and my Cooking with the Stars posts over at ClassicMovieHub.com.
1: And our Patreon, as always, keeps the lights on at TicklishBizHQ and gives us chances to do new things like our Sabrina episode of Doubled Features. So consider helping us out. We are only a couple dollars away from hitting our Gable and Lombard goal which we would love to finally discuss that monstrosity. Head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz to find out how you can help us. Once again, my book, but have you read the book is out now. Please consider buying it. I hope to do a lot of fun events and book signings, all of that. would love to see you out there if you have bought a copy. We are going to be back on March 29th with a new episode. Till then.